millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, good afternoon. I'm Richard Scott and welcome to the Podcast Hour. It's a show where I listen to some great stories from around the world and bring all the best of what I hear to you. Coming up today, the documents a show mashing up docos and audio. So it speaks to the directors of Free Solo, all about a man climbing a 1,000 metre vertical rock face all on his own without even a rope for company. And it brings you face to face with a brutal African dictator. <laughs> we call it a, a yellow laugh in French, meaning you, you, you laugh and you're not really laughing, you're, you're terrified also. Yes. Then a show taking you right into life changing untold stories. Thomas is in the middle of arranging an appointment to have a DNA test. Yeah, bring 120 quid and a he wants to find eyes. out if a baby girl in this town is his. And I do. Despite the fact that another man's name is on the birth certificate. Finally, fathers and sons. And what's the real reason why a dad won't accept a donated kidney from his gay son? I wonder if that means in his head that my kidney represents all the bad things he sees in his son. And he's worried that by receiving it, he'll become bad. And if you have a favourite show you'd like me to feature, then please let me know about it. Pods at rnz.co.nz is the email address. And on Twitter, we're at RNZ Podcast Hour. What's it like to be face-to-face with pure evil? the guest of an unpredictable, ruthless and frequently homicidal African dictator. The documents a recent discovery that mashes together the worlds of documentary film and audio. In interviews with some of the world's top documentary makers, it uncovers some great stories about how they do what they do. For example, how they get access to their subjects or manage their sometimes difficult relationships with them. The Yellow Laugh is all about the challenges facing a filmmaker called Barbe Schroeder back in 1974, making a documentary called General Idi Amin Dada a self-portrait. It's about the notorious Ugandan dictator, whose brutal regime caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people in this small East African country in the 70s. Idi Amin took over Uganda in a coup in 1970, and he ruled the country for most of the decade with unusual brutality. He bragged of cannibalism, reportedly kept his enemies' heads in a refrigerator at his beach house, 
Ricardo Arizio says he was known for broadcasting executions on television. And making sure that uh, the people who were going to be executed were wearing white shirts in order to make the blood more visible to television viewers. But while Amin was a murderous sociopath, he was also a very affable, colorful sociopath. I know exactly when, how, what time I am going to die. This I know. And which year, and which date. All this I know already, and it is a secret. I have said this clear. As the years went by, he would become more brutal, but also more eccentric. He ultimately anointed himself His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal Alhaji Dr. Idi Amin Dada, VC, DSO, MC, Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the seas, and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general, and Uganda in particular. I wanted to do a portrait of... Uh, of him, but I didn't feel I had the knowledge or the right to decide myself how the portrait was going to be, and that if I ask him to do a self-portrait, it would be much more revealing and it would be more exciting. Did someone just call him? I mean, how do you reach out to a dictator, an African dictator? You just say, hi, I want oh, to make... Oh, no, the, the ambassador of France... Uh, called him, they say, listen, our country wants to do a, a television on you. Will you be interested? Ah. <laughs> and uh, the first meeting was, I want you to tell me uh, what you want in this movie. I want you to encourage me to go in this direction or this direction. Consider yourself that you are going to help me. You're going to tell me what to do. But you have to be in the shot. I'll do whatever whatever you want, but with you in the shot explaining. Uh, so, uh, and that was it. That was the the first meeting. And then he, he liked it because he felt that uh, I was there to understand. I was there to be excited, to understand, and to laugh. I was laughing every time he was saying something funny. So... He was encouraged by his audience. <laughs> we call it a, a yellow laugh in French, meaning you, you, you laugh and you're not really laughing. You're, you're terrified also. Yes. So that was the deal. Schroeder was going to let a madman tell him where he should go and what he should shoot. And every day, he and famed Cuban cinematographer Nestor Almendros would show up at the Ministry of Information to find out what Amin had dreamed up for them. They ended up filming him reviewing his troops and playing the accordion at a party and dancing with local tribesmen with a shield and a spear. I enjoyed that very much, especially when he started having fun with making a movie. Idi Amin had a really strange idea of fun. Like the day he called out the military to show Schroeder how easy it would be for the Palestinians to take back the territory they'd lost to Israel in the 1967 Six Day War. Now, advance. Advance. Amin seems very pleased with himself, riding on top of a tank in his beret and sunglasses. But his soldiers look a little unclear about what they're supposed to be doing, so they just plod through the tall grass, firing at who knows what. Of course, it was totally 
ridiculous and, and, and pathetic, but <laughs> it became a hilarious uh, a moment. And then at one point, he says to the cameraman, because there's a helicopter coming, and he had arranged all those helicopters, and he said to the cameraman, film the helicopter. Go quickly, because helicopters are now coming. Okay. So he gives an order to the camera, and the camera pans and goes to film the helicopter. For me, it was a, like a, an orgastic uh, moment in, in the movie. It still is. Victory over Golan Heights. There are also much more quiet, more personal moments in the film, like when Amin is playing with some of his children. The movie says he had 18, but he claimed he had 43. I am very good marksman. <laughs> a little bit of voiceover mentions that he wouldn't allow any of his wives to be filmed. Apparently, he was about to swap a couple of them out of the rotation. <laughs> yeah. But I like, I like children very much. Yes, they are very happy. <laughs> At no point does Amin act overtly monstrous. In fact, it's that strange mixture of evil and affability that Schroeder found so compelling. But is it true that you said Hitler didn't kill enough Jews during the war? <laughs> of course, nobody in Uganda would dare speak to Amin the way Schroeder did. And you can feel that while you're watching the movie. No matter how festive the scene is, the smiles that you see on people's faces seem forced. They laugh too easily and too long. Like when five or six men somehow managed to get roped into a little swim meet with Idi Amin. They're all standing at the edge of a pool, though Amin seems about twice the size of everybody else. Ready? Go. Amin's arms flail around wildly as he swims right over two of the other men. The rest of them seem to be moving very slowly, and one of them might not even be able to swim. I won. <laughs> this is a movie that's filled with yellow laughs, as Schroeder says. It's hilarious in a bone-chilling way. There just always seems to be some kind of sinister subtext. For instance, there's a scene of a little cruise on Lake Victoria. Amin is sitting in a small motorboat in a blue uniform. He's like a kid. He's so excited about the elephants and the hippos. But that is not what they're really there to see. The boat slows along the grassy banks of the lake, where there's a huge crocodile. Its mouth is wide open. I think this might be captain of crocodile. <laughs> yes, he understands me now. He's moving. <laughs> very big. Yes. Yes, very good. It's hard to know why this scene is so creepy. And only later did Schroeder look back and understand what Amin was really showing him. I had talked to a few local people, and I remember very well sitting at a restaurant in Kampala. This was the capital. And uh, there is next to it the Lake Victoria, and there's a big dam, electrical dam. At one point, the electricity went out in the restaurant, and they had to take out the candles and say, oh, well... This is okay, I'm used to it. Many countries don't have the luxury of have electricity all the time. And they say, well, this, we think that 
If it's at this hour, this means that the turbines of the dam have stopped because they've been blocked. And I, I say, oh yeah, but do not block how? Well, it's a little bit embarrassing, but it's the bones or the bodies of the people who have been fed to the crocodile and the crocodile couldn't eat them all. The Yellow Laugh from KCRW's The Document. And this episode's about free solo. One man's attempts to solo climb the vertical 1,000 metre El Capitan rock face in the Yosemite National Park. People in the documentary world are always going on about whether the presence of the camera changes what it captures. They usually don't talk about whether their cameras will kill their subjects. But that's exactly what Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chin had to worry about while they were filming Alex Honnold climbing El Capitan for their new movie, Free Solo. And they started worrying about it the moment Alex uttered the words El Capitan and Free Solo in the same sentence. I immediately asked Chai three or four times, he said what? She said, oh, he's, he said he wants to free solo El Cap. And I said, he said what? You know, I mean, it took me a bit of time to really kind of wrap my head around it. At which point I took a step back and said, you know, I don't, I don't know if we should make this film. You know, because your, your mind goes to immediately the worst case scenario. Chai, do you remember those early conversations? No, it, it was very intense. Um, it really was a moment to, for us to pause and to stop and say, like, is there something we even want to be involved in? Alex Honnold is a good-looking, wiry 33-year-old with big brown eyes. He looks pretty unremarkable, but he really isn't like the rest of us. There's been a lot of speculation about, like, how I deal with fear and, like, how I'm able to free solve. People are just like, oh, well, he must be a thrill-seeker. There must be something defective. The thing is that free solo climbing is an insanely dangerous sport. The list of famous free solo climbers reads a little like the obituary page. So Alex has a, a lot of different nicknames. You know, Spock, no big deal, Honold, Han Solo. And Spock because? <laughs> because he's kind of this very rational, non-emotive person. Alex may just have been born like that. He certainly was, as Chai puts it, a... Really geeky, awkward, scared kid. And that didn't seem to change much as he got older. There was definitely a time when I started climbing outside more and I was starting to road trip and go to campgrounds, but I was too afraid to talk to strangers. So I was doing a lot of soloing, or just a lot of climbing by myself just because I didn't know anybody and I didn't want to talk to anybody. So to dissect that a little, it was safer to climb rocks by himself than talk to another human being. And even to this day, you can sense a certain distance between Alex and other people. My friends who were like, oh, that'd be terrible. But if I kill myself in an accident, they'll be like, oh, that was too bad. But like life goes on, you know, like they'll be fine. I mean, and I've had this problem with, with girls a lot. You know, they're like, oh, I really care about you. And I'm like, no, you don't. Like if I perish, like it doesn't matter. Like you'll find somebody else. Like that's not, that's not that big a deal. Given that attitude, you won't be surprised to hear that Alex Honnold mostly lives alone in a van. It's a tricked out van, but still, it's a van. Yeah, I mean, I love, I love being in the van. Probably feel extra comfortable in the van now because I've lived in it for nine years. Alex drove his van to Yosemite to get ready for the most treacherous free climb in history. 
It would require nerves of steel and an almost inhuman amount of strength and skill and preparation. Each move, each tiny handhold and foothold had to be thought through and practiced and practiced. And that's what Alex did for months before he climbed El Cap. Pitch one to stay left towards the top, splitter, feels more secure. Pitch two, trust the right foot, rock on, trust the feet, right hand for the last undercline. Eight, easy romp, go fast. Stay outside with the down climb, careful block. 26, so lie back corner, key left hand, right foot back step, edge, left foot against the wall, stand a huge ear jug thing. Feet match the big jug, crack. Then you see right hand down plane on the top right of the jug. You can see why shoving a camera in Alex's face while he was hanging by his fingernails 2,000 feet in the air seemed like a questionable idea. But if he was going to make this climb and someone was going to film it, there probably wasn't anyone better to do it than Chai Vassarelli and Jimmy Chin. Chai's an experienced documentary filmmaker, and Jimmy is a bit of a mountaineering god. He and the guys who'd be up there with him, he calls them his high-angle crew, had filmed thousands of hours hanging off of mountains. And most of them had known Alex for years. And ultimately, that's why Jimmy and Chai decided to do the film. Someone was going to film it, and who would Alex most trust to be there alongside him? You know, that's where we landed. And they trusted Alex to show good judgment about whether he should make the climb or not. We all wanted to support Alex as his friend to do it, you know. Uh, But we also wanted to be very careful about you know, shielding him from any external pressure of the film, if that makes sense, that he needed to do it for the film. Some of Free Solo from the document from KCRW, hosted by Matt Holtzman, who produced the show with Sarah Pellegrini and Mike Schlitt. Imagine getting right into the middle of a true story that develops around you while you're listening. That's the narrative approach taken in The Untold, a BBC show telling stories about life in modern Britain. Its team of producers, well, they seem to have a superpower. They're able to find people going through significant life events and persuade them to talk about it all while it's still happening. I'll speak to one of The Untold team in just a moment about how they do it all. And it sounds and feels very different from the normal way these stories get told to us, usually using audio recorded and edited together after the fact, with a narrative provided by someone usually sitting in a studio who knows the eventual outcome. Stories in the untold can develop in unexpected directions, so the uncertainty and the sense of jeopardy feels genuine. Be My Baby is all about a man about town called Thomas, who's in the middle of a potentially life-changing experience. When it comes to attracting women, Thomas is that powerful combo of tough and motorcycle-loving and also at the same time soft and kind and the sort of lad who loves his mum and his cat. Do you want to come off here? Now Thomas has got himself into... Hello. Well more than a spot of bother. Hello. <laughs> With a girl from the other side of town. Yeah, speaking. He's on the phone to a local doctor's surgery. Thursday, yeah? Thomas is in the middle of arranging an appointment to have a DNA test. Yeah, bring 120 quid and... A he wants to find out if a baby girl in this town is his. And I do. Despite the fact that another man's name is on the birth certificate. Bye. Wow. This is The Untold. By the way, I'm calling Thomas, 
Thomas, but this isn't his actual name because this is a very intimate and difficult story. I think everyone needs a little privacy. But let's start at the beginning. I met her online on a website called Tagged. Uh, I've used it for years. Went round her flat, chilled out for a little bit with her. Went round the next day, chilled out with her again, just carried on talking to her. There was a thing going around Facebook at the time where men would put makeup on to raise awareness for a charity. And uh, I let her put all my make- her makeup on me and I had like blue eyes and pink cheeks and fat red lips. She was sweet, she was funny, she was kind, but she was just not right for me. I vaguely remember him telling me that he'd met someone, but given the fact that my mum had died four weeks after we moved here, um, he kind of kept a little bit quiet. It's about a week and a half, something like that, that we was, shall I say, seeing each other, about a week and a half. After that, things was like... <laughs> things just went a bit sizzly. Thomas's fling with the girl he met on Tagged ended. It had only lasted a few days. And by February, a few weeks later, Thomas had met someone new. It came to Valentine's Day and I was at this girl's house, chilling with her and her dad. And then I had a text from, what's her name, saying, oh, by the way, I'm pregnant. (laughs) It's Valentine's Day, the day of partners and the day of love. And you're feeling lonely as hell, so you're going to say this, try and make me come back. That's my initial reaction. So I was like, bullshit, prove it. So uh, I went round to see her and talked to her. And uh, she had the tests on her, and that kind of was a bit definitive for me. I was like, OK, yeah, she's pregnant. I didn't say I loved her, nothing like that. I just said, look, we don't want a relationship, we're not meant for a relationship, but I've got you pregnant, so I'll stand up to Mark. I went round her every day for, like, two months. I went to scans with her. I wasn't pleased about the fact that it hadn't been a long-term relationship. I would have preferred it if it had been. But as it was, it wasn't. We found this... This really cute baby grow, it's got fluff on the front of it and it's so you can put your baby on laminate floor and whilst they're crawling about they like polish the floor. So it was quite cool, we had a laugh with it and stuff like that, we did get on well. Like we thought of the name Ellie for a girl and Theo for a boy. I love that name Theo. <laughs> I got really excited about it and so did my mum at some point. I know she was calling and asking if there was any hereditary conditions in the family and everything was kind of fine until following month. It got to April 15th and she started getting a bit distant and, like, offered me in short, blunt replies. And I was just like... She said she was going out to cinema over May. I was like, ah, fair who? I was just like, just generally asking who you're going out with. And she's like, it doesn't concern you. And I was like, well, no, I'm just generally asking a question. Why are you getting so defensive? She started cutting him dead and blocking him and... Because he'd already been to the scans with her, so he'd already built up a little bit of an emotional attachment. But then it all went pear-shaped, so rein in the emotions. Simple as that. She blocked me from Tagged, WhatsApp, Snapchat, Facebook. And did you have any friends in common that you... No. So actually she just disappeared? Yeah, she just literally vanished. I've got my collection of acoustic guitars and electric guitars... I've got a Martin Smith, I've got this, which is one of my newest ones. I need to get a new high string, Mum. Thomas's pregnant ex-girlfriend had gone completely off the radar. 
He was upset and worried and, above all, confused. Did she just want to have this baby completely without him? I've had to bottle everything up. My mum found me in the bathroom in tears because I just couldn't cope. It's the whole not knowing that annoys the hell out of me. The one thing Thomas does know is that this girl's ex-boyfriend has moved back in with her. Because Thomas's fling with this girl only lasted a few days, he's beginning to doubt whether this really is his baby. It's just the not knowing that I hate. If I knew she was mine and I was just waiting for confirmation, I already know. But as well, I don't know if she is or if she isn't. That's what I find the most difficult part. Months passed. The baby was about to arrive and Thomas still knew nothing. Whether the baby or mother were well, Thomas didn't even know if the baby was his. Eventually, he got a sliver of news via a new acquaintance who was friends with his ex on Facebook. The first post I see when I open her Facebook was from that day, so in going at three o'clock. And that's when I knew that by that night, my child would be in this world. I felt like I was going to puke. I wanted to scream. I wanted to smile. I wanted to cry. And then I just stalked that Facebook. And it, was, it wasn't until the next day there was a photo put up of her and I saw her. Mum made a pasta bake. I remember this, actually, because I love my pasta. And I was sat in the conservatory eating it with her and I broke down in tears and cried all over my pasta bake. But th- there were tears of... Tears of fear and happiness, love and hate, every emotion under the sun. I was crying out my eyeballs. <laughs> I mean, I was happy that I could finally see her and know what she looks like. But I was terrified that she could be mine. Some of Be My Baby from The Untold, presented by Grace Dent and produced by Sarah Bowen for BBC Radio 4. Sarah's been working on The Untold since the show started over three years and a hundred episodes ago. Because it's so different, it is quite hard to make because actually we're following a story as it unfurls. We're trying to, you know, capture that that moment when someone's life is is going to change. So I have to be there when somebody loses their job or gets a home or finds out their husband's been having an affair. And so that's what makes it so compelling and that's what we try and do is is get people into a story that they can't switch off but equally that's what makes it so hard to make in many ways because you have to find the ballerina before she falls off the stage and how do you do that how do you find those because i i kept listening to it thinking i don't know how you've a why would someone give you that kind of access and say i'm just going through this really traumatic period in my life hey i'd like you to come and record it and B, how do you even know that that's going on? How do you hear about these people? Well, we do start following stories that don't make it to air because it doesn't pan out. But, yeah, it is very research-heavy in the first place. So how do I find people? I mean, we, we all do our own research, so most of the producers are finding their own stories through Reddit or crowdfunding websites, local papers. I mean, I actually I probably am different from some of the producers because I focus in on a story I want to tell. And then, having decided I want to tell that story, I start phone bashing 
organisations, companies, charities, help groups, friends of friends, until I find the right story to tell. So I hone it in, in a way that other people probably think more laterally or broadly about trying to find a story. How did you find Thomas? Well, I knew that was a story I wanted to tell, so I think it took me about six months to find him. I mean, I rang most of the DNA testing labs in the UK and tried to explain to them what I wanted to do and why. And most of them said no. But Alpha Bio Labs was the one that said they'd think about it. And about four months after our first phone call, they started to come back with potential people. And one of them, Thomas, delightfully wanted to take part. Why do you think he was up for it? Because it, it, I don't want to use the wrong word here, but it, I don't want to say intrusive, but that's the word that comes to mind. If I'm going through all this and it's very emotional and I'm uncertain about something and it's got a massive impact on my life, probably the last thing I'd be thinking about is, hey, I know, I'll get someone to record it all and put it out on the radio. Yes, I mean, I think people <laughs> people have varying uh, reasons for wanting to take part. I mean, some people just genuinely want me or fellow producers alongside them when they're doing something that's really completely out of their comfort zone. I mean, other people just have a, a story they want to get across. I made a programme about a woman called Maya who was an anorexic teenager sitting her, her A-levels, her end of school exams, and despite you know her illness and her stress what she wanted to tell the story she wanted to get across was the fact that it was having a huge impact on her brother and a lot of people aren't aware of the ripple effects anorexia can have so that was you know some people come to me and that's the angle they want to they have a story they want to tell and other people just think that actually if we're there alongside them the journey or the the hell they're going to go through won't be as bad. I mean, I made a programme about a woman deciding whether to have a Huntingdon's test and all her family had been wiped out by it. So, you know, she wanted to talk about Huntingdon's and how it's a hidden disease, but also she knew that if I wasn't there, she might not have the test at all. So you've got an idea in mind and you go out and it sounds like you're looking online a lot for certain topics and issues that interest you. You find someone to talk to and they're willing and able to do so. Have you ever had a situation where you've kind of gone through this whole quite labour-intensive process that you've found someone to talk to and they've kind of got caged you or had second thoughts somewhere during that process and said, I don't want to do it anymore? Yes, and I think that's quite right that they do. I mean, I do say quite upfront, quite early on, this is quite intrusive and it's quite intimate and I can change your name, but I can't anonymise your voice, so you will be recognised. And I, I mean, I followed for a little bit a man who had stolen money from his company to pay for his kids' private boarding school fees. And he was deciding whether to tell his employer, because he hadn't told his employer that he'd been in prison and he was a thief. And he decided in the making of the programme that he shouldn't do it because actually his children didn't want him to do it. And so usually when people pull out, I kind of agree with them that they shouldn't be doing it. But it doesn't happen as often as you think it it would. I mean, you get a level of trust that I find absolutely extraordinary making these programmes and and people give their stories to you and you have to treasure them and look after them and, and respect what they've done and tell them in the best way that you both feel is right. But you have to almost be ready to drop everything. If you're following a story and you're waiting for these key kind of pivotal moments uh, for that story to develop, 
what, you might just get a phone call and say, hey, it's all on, you need to get here now. Oh, yeah. I mean, the amount of Saturday nights I've spent trundling on awful, terrible diesel trains across the UK, thinking what's happened to my social life and getting excited because somebody might be open to sell me a cheese sandwich at one in the morning. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> you have to be there and ready to go. But, you know, if people, are, if people are sharing their stories with you, I think the least I can do is, is be there at those pivotal moments. I mean, I also use quite a bit of self-record and audio, traditional audio diaries, which, you know, some people are brilliant at and some aren't. And that helps a little bit. So I will say, here's a Zoom or do you know how to record on your phone? Well, when I've gone and when you're thinking and when everybody's in bed, please just whip out your phone and, and tell me what's going on. And I think if you're going to be playing the Thomas programme, there's a point at which he goes to have the DNA test and I couldn't go for some reason. And so that little bit when he's sitting in the doctor's surgery, he just whips out his phone and tries to record himself. I'm currently sat in the doctor's and I've just had my swabs. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to record while it was happening. All you would have heard was... And the great thing is, I think audiences are totally OK with some of the rough and readiness now of that self-record and it, and it seamlessly fits into a programme where hopefully when I come back on board it's recorded slightly clearer. But nobody objects. I just think it's important that those key moments in the story, if we can record them, are, are there. It's funny, isn't it? Because I'm just thinking, talking to you, and, and so many of the stories that we hear, and I guess this is the untold's point of difference, you kind of know, or, or the person making the show knows what the beginning, the middle and the end is when they make the show. And they're almost, you know, in some ways, perhaps trying to capture the uncertainty retrospectively and kind of going through, oh, we didn't know this at the time. But you're able to capture all that uncertainty and all that emotion at the time. And I guess that's the key point of difference, isn't it? I mean, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to get so intensely into that moment that you can't turn it off because it is so now and happening and you are alongside it. But yes, from a producer's point of view, if you don't know what's going to happen or what the result's going to be, you have to keep the edit, I think, quite loosely or if edited at all until you stop recording. I mean, I tend to not edit at all in case the programme doesn't happen. The programme I made about someone deciding whether to have a, a, a test to find out whether she had Huntington's, I wasn't sure that I'd be able to broadcast it at all if the result was really, really bad, because it would be too painful and awful. And you can hear me, actually, if you do ever listen to it, as she gets the results and she doesn't have it, there's this awful sniffing, blubbing noise, and I was thinking, what on earth is going on? And actually, it's me. With, uh, I'm trying to wipe my nose on the microphone because I was so engaged with the story and equally so delighted I could actually broadcast the story because it was a good result. And with the example with Thomas in Be My Baby, I mean, the moment that he gets those results, I'm not going to say what they are, from the, the testing lab... That was all. You were there on the spot, and that was all. New, that was news to all of you equally. Oh, completely. I mean, you could never mock something like that up. And I run that in in almost real time. Would you like me to give you a verbal result over the telephone? Do you want a verbal result, Mum? But we still need to get on email. Yeah, but we still get the email as well. Yeah, you'll still get the email. Yeah. Go on then, give me a verbal result. But yes, now I was sitting there recording that and we were all just staring at kind of at a white blank wall. 
And part of you, of course, as a professional, is thinking, how am I going to get make this into a programme? And the other half is thinking, you know, you get so in engaged and alongside your contributors that you're gunning for them to have the answer that, that they're desperate for. Sarah Bowen, one of the producers of The Untold from BBC Radio 4. And there's a back catalogue of about 100 stories the show's already covered. Details of where to listen to more and subscribe on our website at rnz.co.nz forward slash podcast hour. Nancy is a show that, to use its own words, offers stories and conversations about the queer experience today. It's hosted by two best friends who identify as Gaysians, Tobin Lowe and Cathy Too. It's warm, funny, frequently moving, and it's a look at people at various stages along the road to accepting who they are and who they want to be, even if that doesn't always square with the expectations of their family or of society at large. Perfect Son is Jason's story. He's a writer whose father's sick and needs a new kidney. My dad, growing up, was always my favourite person. He was an architect and had his own construction company in Korea, and so he would come home with a bag of ice cream, and I would hear his footsteps and the rustling of the plastic bag as he was walking down the hall, and I would get so excited, and I would jump out of the couch and run towards the front door and grab his neck and, and swing around him, you know, he was my number one guy. When Jason was in elementary school, his dad decided to move the family to the U.S. And that's when Jason started to notice a change in his dad. He, I think, had been a little depressed because of immigrating, and he became quieter, and it became very difficult to access him. As time went on, he became even more removed— and maybe the most noticeable difference, he started speaking less and less. Jason says that at a certain point, his dad stopped talking altogether. And the guy who used to be the jovial, successful businessman coming home with the bag of ice cream disappeared. His dad is kind of a mystery to him now. Their relationship is completely different. And Jason has hard evidence to prove it. You know how when you go into your phone and you click a person's contact information, mm -hmm. it shows you the last handful of calls that you've had with one another? Yep. I did that once with my dad, and we had like nine phone calls in the past three, four months, and they were all under a minute long. <laughs> <laughs> and I guarantee that most of those phone calls were spent with him asking about the weather in New York and me asking about his car. So in a lot of ways, when Jason got a call from his dad about three years ago, it started out like any other. How's the weather? How's the car? But then Jason's dad dropped a bomb. He said, I'm having issues with my Xinjiang which is Korean for kidney. And I was like, wait a minute, what are you talking about? And then he clarified, I have kidney failure. Only 10% of my kidney is working. Suddenly, it's not the usual talk. Jason starts asking questions. Details begin to emerge. 
It turns out his dad had to go on daily dialysis. He was having trouble walking. He had a rare blood type that made it harder to find a kidney donor. And maybe the most distressing detail of all. He had been ill for quite some time, for the last year and a half, two years. And he had not said a single word. Neither had Jason's mom. His parents had been trying to handle everything on their own. And for a while, it had been an easy thing to keep from Jason. He was only home for a couple days here and there at the holidays, and the symptoms of his dad's disease hadn't been bad enough to be visible. But now things had gotten to a point where they couldn't hide it anymore. And his parents don't speak very much English, so they needed help managing the treatment. That's when Jason's dad finally made the call to his only son. Jason hangs up the phone, and he's just stunned. On top of not knowing about his father's illness, he realizes he doesn't know anything about kidney failure, period. And so, he gets to studying. He starts learning about finding an organ donor, how transplant surgery works. And eventually, he calls up his own doctor and says, I want to get tested to see if I'm a match. So he starts the long process. Getting blood work, filling out forms. And urine tests. So you have to pee into a plastic container for 24 hours. So I remember having to carry the bags (laughs) on the two train and thinking, oh, wow, this is my life. I'm carrying around my own pee on the two train during rush hour. And that is the most disgusting thing I've ever done. And I hope that no one notices. To be fair, it probably wasn't the most disgusting thing on that two train. (laughs) You're probably right. After months of waiting, he gets a call from his doctor who tells him... That I am almost a perfect match to donate my kidney. Suddenly, everything was different. The situation went from, oh, wouldn't it be nice if I was a match, to, oh, I can save my father's life. So I remember receiving this news... And shaking. And I picked up my phone and I called my dad, but my mom picked up. And I said, I'm a match. Mom, I'm a match. Dad's going to be fine. And she started hysterically crying. And then she handed the phone to my dad. And he listened to the news, and he got very, very quiet. And then he said, okay. Now, okay can mean a lot of things. Okay, this is a lot of information to process. Okay, great. I'm so grateful that you're a match. Give me your kidney. Okay, what do we do now? But what Jason came to realize is that when his dad said okay, what he really meant was no. No way am I taking your kidney. And we're not talking about him saying no one time. The last year and a half of my life has been me trying to convince my dad to take my kidney. And it happens everywhere. We'll be out eating ramen, and I'll be like, so about this kidney, Dad, what do you think? We'll be walking down the street, and I'll say, so you know that I could still give you my kidney, right? And at this point, it feels like I'm doing an ongoing bit. And always the answer is no. I never know why. And he won't say. Sometimes he sits his dad down, looks him in the eye, and really pleads his case that taking his kidney is the only option. 
He talks about a time when his dad came to see a performance of one of his plays. The next morning at breakfast, Jason brought up the kidney. I said to him, don't you want to see more of my plays? Don't you want to see my grandchildren? I want you to be there the day that I get married. I want to give you that. And he took that in, and he nodded, and he didn't say anything else. Jason has spent years trying to make sense of what seems like a backward situation. Son offers kidney, dad says no, and on top of it all, his mom refuses to take sides. It makes Jason feel like the real reason his dad says no, the something everyone is refusing to talk about, is really, really bad. And he has a theory on what that real reason is. The ongoing narrative in my head is that since the day that I came out, I can't do anything right, including donating an organ. When did you come out to him? There was never a press release, but when I was a teenager watching a movie dubbed over in Korean, I think it was Hot Shots or some terrible movie, and there was a scene where Charlie Sheen was having sex in a limousine. And obviously the whole thing was shot to reveal and focus on the woman in the scene. And she was like wearing this slinky dress and had this, in my imagination, she's wearing white fur and is very sexy and has blonde hair. And I could only pay attention to Charlie Sheen. And I remember watching that and pointing that out to him and saying, oh, Charlie Sheen's very handsome. (laughs) And I think I was like seven years old or something. Jason remembers this as the moment both he and his dad realized he might be gay. And a couple years later, when he was a teenager, Jason felt sure. When I told myself and realized that I'm gay, I remember sitting in my car in St. Louis and hysterically crying. And at the time, I didn't know what I was crying about. But looking back, I think it's that my dad always said I was his perfect son. And I knew in that moment that I was no longer his perfect son. And that was crushing to me. He told his parents he thought he was attracted to boys. They did not take him seriously. They assumed it was a phase, so they refused to talk about it, or they would change the subject if it came up. They basically took Jason's gayness. And then buried under the rug is almost too soft a term. They they dug a hole in the ground to subterranean earth and shoved that information in there and refused to acknowledge it. But when he went off to college, his identity became impossible to ignore. His sophomore year, he had a medical emergency and passed out. He woke up in a hospital bed with his mom standing by his side. She had flown to New York. At first, he was relieved. And then he was horrified. I remember thinking, oh, this is bad. And then we went back to my dorm, and on my dorm, there were just posters of all these men that I was in love with. And I remember she looked at the wall and looked at me and looked at the wall and looked at me. And I think she realized then, like, oh, he's not kidding. This is real. Jason felt like he had become so many things his parents did not want. Gay instead of straight, a writer instead of a doctor or a lawyer. And all of it had been easy for his parents to just not think about. But he knew in that moment 
that his mother would go home and tell his dad what happened, what she had seen. From there, it felt like his father's silence changed from a quirk into a sign of deep disapproval. Calls to the house became shorter, less frequent. He visited home less often. And thinking about all those years of silence, it adds up to one conclusion. The fact that he has a lifeline that he won't take, I wonder if that means in his head that my kidney represents all the bad things he sees in his son. And he's worried that by receiving it, he'll become bad. Jason Kim in Some of Perfect Son from Nancy, hosted by Tobin Lowe and Kathy Tu and produced for WNYC Studios by Matt Collette and Jeremy Bloom. And that's about it from the podcast hour for now. Until next time, happy listening and enjoy the rest of your weekend. See you. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.